Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Angie Mazzetti. This week's guest is Emily Foges, who is CEO of Luminance, an artificial intelligence company making tailored technical solutions for the legal industry. Well, Emily is one of those leaders I imagine would be great to work for because she's worked as a fashion buyer and in mergers and acquisitions. And she has an interesting take on the similarities between all of these businesses and how they operate. More of that later. Emily is a huge believer in the power of listening. Day to day, um, you know, listening is 80% of the job for me. 40% of the job is listening to the customer. 40% of the job is listening to um, to the team. Um, and the other 20% is doing stuff. Um, but really, you know, understanding you know, what's going on and having a really good radar for all of those things is absolutely vital. And Emily doesn't surround herself with yes men or yes women, preferring her teams to tell it to her straight making sure that they all understand that I want them to disagree, I want them to say, and the last thing I want to hear is, oh, I didn't want to say because I thought it might be anything, might be a noise. Emily Foges also knows that networking and visibility and audibility is vital and that you have to put yourself out there. One of the things that you have to do is you know, make sure that you're out there and talking and engaging um, with, um, with the press and with your customers and you know, with everybody you possibly can. Well, thanks to COVID-19, we've moved to recording via Zoom and it's worked out pretty well, but not as good as in studio or on location, of course, which we will get back to hopefully in time. So do stick with us. The sound quality is good and Emily is definitely worth listening to. Hello and welcome Emily Foger, CEO of Fast Growth British AI Scale-Up Luminance. Did I say that right? Yes. You're very welcome, Emily. Tell me, what does Luminance do? So Luminance is an artificial intelligence platform uh, for the legal profession. So um, what we do is we have a, um, an engine called Light. It's the legal inference transformation engine. And what that does is it reads and understands legal language. And then it learns from the interaction with lawyers. So if you imagine you've got, um, you're doing an M&A activity, so you're buying a company and you've got 200,000 documents which are about this company and they're set up in a data room. And obviously as that company's lawyers, you're not going to be able to read all of that yourself or not in any meaningful way. So what Luminance does is it finds all the patterns in the language across all of those documents which means that you find all the standards and deviations. And if you imagine, if you've got a thousand documents to read and you know that 998 of them are identical, there are two that stand out and here, is the way, here are the ways in which they stand out, that massively accelerates the work of a lawyer, but without, in it, without causing them to cut any corners or compromise at all in their legal thinking. So it points them to the important stuff. Yes, exactly. Right, well, it points them to different stuff and then the lawyer has to decide whether that matters or not. And that's really yeah. crucial for us that you know, the lawyer stays at the heart of this. We don't want to take the lawyer out of the process. We want to put the lawyer back in the middle of the process so the technology is not doing the work for them. Now, you worked in mergers and acquisitions beforehand, but you also worked in the fashion industry. Is that right? Mm. Well, my first job was in the fashion industry. My first three jobs were in the fashion industry. Um, but really, in my mind, you know, it's manufacturing, it's a supply chain, it's procurement. Um, and in my head now, everything I look at is you know, manufacturing, supply chain and procurement. I'm always thinking of things in terms of, you know, what's the lead time on this? Where are the raw materials? What is, you know, what is the customer buying and why are they buying it? Like all of the skills that you learn in retail and, you know, particularly fast moving fashion retail where you have be very adaptive and very responsive to the customer's needs and changing whims is great training ground for any kind of industry. You really do have to be agile, as the, the buzzword is, I presume. Yeah, 
Yes, exactly. You know, you have to really watch your customer very, very carefully and then, you know, act fast when you notice that something's not right. And this AI product that you have, it's doing very well across different countries, I can see. Uh, we went global very early on. Um, it was an interesting thing. We didn't expect this, but when we launched, um, we launched at the International Bar Association Annual Congress, which moves around every year. So, you know, one year it's in, um, that, that year it was in Washington, D.C. Last year it was in Seoul. The year before that it was in Rome. And lawyers come from all around the world to that conference. So as a result of that, the first three customers we had were Norwegian, Dutch and French, followed by Australians, followed by Singaporeans. So from really, really early days, we had a very kind of global reach for that reason. Um, and what that led us to realize as well, which is amazing now looking back that we hadn't clocked this, but the technology is language agnostic because we're using pattern recognition. It doesn't matter what language you're working in. And that hadn't occurred to us until our customers pointed it out to us, those first Norwegian customers. You know, we're using this in Norwegian. Of course you are. That makes so much sense. Um, but as a result, we're now working with lawyers in you know, 60 countries around the world. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been very exciting for the whole team. And of course, with this horrible COVID-19 crisis, people are learning things in a whole new way. And technology is having, is having to develop and change so fast within a matter of weeks um, I presume this is good for your business as well, is it? It is really good. Um, I think what the feedback we're getting from customers at the moment is that in particular, the fact that the technology enables them to really collaborate. So, yeah, you've got lawyers sitting you know, in all of their homes and carrying on with their work at least as effectively as they were when they were all sitting in an office together. And I think law is one of the last sort of bastions of, you know, of presenteeism, actually. You know, the idea of working from home as a lawyer is not that acceptable um, that's really changing now and they're actually realizing the benefits of it um, so yeah we're getting a lot of demand at the moment from um, law firms and in-house legal teams who need to analyze contracts obviously for things like force majeure um, but also to analyze their insurance provision you know what am I covered for um, their supply chain um, you know looking at their supplier agreements you know where where does the you know, where does the buck stop in this situation is it with me or with my supplier so there's a lot of very kind of new analysis that needs to be done. And because uh, Luminance doesn't mind what you're looking for, it supports you no matter what kind of analysis you're doing, they're finding lots of new ways of um, getting stuff done with Luminance now. Do you think the way that we're all having to work from home, even broadcasters and now lawyers, um, is it yeah. going to make things better for women, do you think, generally? Particularly women balancing caring duties. Well, men balancing caring duties as well. But is it going to make life a little bit easier for women? Possibly. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, flexible working is being accelerated. Um, and that's going to be great for a lot of people. Um, I think, um, I don't know, I don't know whether it particularly benefits women just because actually when I go to the school gates for my kids, you know, there are as many men as there are women nowadays. Um, but I think certainly for families, um, who need a bit more flexibility, you know, if you've got a child who's sick from school, you know, that doesn't stop you from working necessarily, but it does stop you from going into the office. So I think in those kind of situations, it's definitely going to level the playing field. Yeah. Just getting on to the whole topic of women in leadership, you're quite unusual in that you're leading a tech firm, essentially. And that's not that common for women to be leading tech companies. Um, how did you manage to carve that out? <laughs> um, well, I didn't deliberately set out to run a technology business. Um, I suppose most businesses are technology businesses now at the end of the day. I mean, you, know, you look at Ocado and Amazon, you know, they're shops. 
but they're still technology businesses. Um, the way that it worked for me really was it was all very obvious at the time when it happened. So um, I was working in mergers and acquisitions doing integration work, which is where obviously, you know, someone's bought a company and they've got to figure out how they make it fit into their existing organization or crash three or four organizations together and turn that into something functional. Um, and I was getting frustrated with that because so often, as everyone knows, you know, people buy companies and then um, they realize a few weeks down the line that they didn't buy what they thought they were going to buy. And I used to look at it and think, you know, what is all this due diligence for? Why do we pay all this money to do all of this work? When actually afterwards, as the integration director, I would very often have a hard time even getting hold of that report. You know, people would say, why would you want to see that? Well, you know, this is the knowledge that we've paid for about these companies. Um, and I became aware that it wasn't being taken seriously. So uh, I was talking to a lot of people about the fact that I really wanted to go and run a startup. Um, and in my mind, it didn't need to be a technology startup. In fact, the first company I ever worked for was a startup. It just happened to make clothing rather than technology. Um, but really, it was about you know, taking the best of everything that I know and applying it to something completely new um, and seeing where we could take that. Okay. Um, do you think women are particularly good at bringing teams together? You know, the collaborative style of leadership? I think everybody has different styles. Um, and I think, you know, diversity of um, leadership in an organization is really, really important. Um, you know, there is a time and a place for really collaborative working and getting everybody's ideas. But there's also a time when you need to say this is just how it's going to be. Um, and I think both styles are equally valid. I think historically the problems have probably come, come about where you've got a, you know, an executive board in an organization who all went to school together and think in exactly the same way. The great thing about my team is how diverse it is. Um, happens to be largely female um, on the leadership front, not entirely, um, but you know, they, they are people from all around the world, from you know, all different ages. We've got people in the senior leadership team who are in their early 20s and in their 50s. And having that real diversity of thought and different energy levels and different, different ways of approaching problems coming together, I think is the most important thing. Yeah, I've heard that from several businesses. And if you don't have that yeah. diversity, you're going to get left behind. And um, I have a, a, a line here from you. Don't be boring and don't be stupid. What do you mean by that? <laughs> Um, so I think this goes back to the very early days of Luminance. I think when we first launched, which was, you know, everyone we hire is really, really bright <laughs> and we hire them because they're bright and because they're interesting. You know, and we don't really hire them because of their experience necessarily. You know, it doesn't really matter what they've done before. I mean, you know, I'm probably a good example of that. As long as they are interesting people and they're bright enough, then we want them to work with us. So having hired you for those reasons, then please don't be boring or stupid because that's not what I hired you for. Um, but I think it's really just as a very simplistic way of just making sure that everything we do um, is done to really you know, keep, keep our customers happy with, with what we're doing. And I think if we're boring them to tears, they're not going to enjoy us. So. You, must, you must have a good culture that makes people feel comfortable being able to do that as well, to be themselves and to bring their whole selves to work. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah culture is probably the most important thing, isn't it? I think without that, then you know, the wheels come off. Um, so, you know, what's been really great, actually, this last couple of weeks has been the daily team email that's come out from um, my marketing team. So we've always done a sort of, you know, a monthly, a monthly roundup of all of the news where, you know, everyone sends in photographs of, you know, things that they've been doing in their office, because obviously we've got lots of different offices all around the world. So trying to bring that sense of connectedness to the team. 
Um, but in, since the crisis started and everyone's been working from home, we've been doing it every day. And that's been really amazing. It's such a galvanizing thing to get to the end of the day and sort of you know, see what everyone's been doing. You know, stupid photos of the sort of mannequins that people have made to keep themselves company when they're at home. And <laughs> Everybody's dogs and children as dogs. well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Amazing, the power of dogs to, <laughs> to keep people <laughs> company and motivate and get out for a little walk as well. Um, tell me about your own support system. You have three teenage daughters? Yeah, I do. How, how uh, do well, you manage always... to run a huge business like that and mind <laughs> a dog and, you know, just work and just pull it all yeah. together and be such a success? How do you manage it? It's really funny. I always say three teenage daughters, even though the youngest one's 10, because she's actually the most kind of sophisticated of the lot. But um, uh, I suppose because I always have, um, I think, um, I think there's something that I bang on about quite a lot, which is when my oldest daughter, Iris, was born. So she's 15 now. Um, she'll be 16 in December. When she was born, it was completely normal for me to say, right, I'm going on maternity leave. I'll be back in five months. No one batted an eyelid. If anything, they were saying, well, get a move on. Um, in the meantime, by the time my youngest was born, so she's 10 now, everything had changed in between. And suddenly the idea that I would go back to work after five months made me some kind of monster um, because it became the maternity laws had changed so that everyone was taking a year. Um, and I think, you know, this might be a little bit controversial, but I think there's a problem with that. That going back after sort of five or six months, honestly, I would go back to work after each child and people would say, I thought you were having a baby. Because <laughs> they hadn't really particularly realized that I hadn't been there and it didn't seem that long. I think a year is very different. So much changes in a year. And also, if, I, you know, if you're going to go on and have more children as I did, you're barely back at work five minutes before you're off again. So I think for me, it was, you know, that, you know, being able to just keep things going to have you know, a proper break five months out and then we had a full-time nanny who lived with us um, primarily because you know we had enough space because we got on the housing ladder early uh, you know sort of 25 years ago or whatever it was um, so I've had a lot of advantages in that way which I don't see when I look at my team uh, so um, for one thing my my husband is slightly younger than me not very much but um, I think for a lot of my team they're married to or going to marry guys who are two or three years older than them which means that probably if anyone's career is going to take a hit for childcare, it's the one who's earning the least which is probably the one who's slightly younger and that pattern gets played out over and again and then when you make that a whole year out of work um you know that's a real setback in your 20s or your early 30s to do that um and I think just accidents really for me sheer accidents the fact that we were able to buy property at a time when it was cheaper than renting um, that I'm slightly older and therefore has never been any question that you know my career should take a back seat because I'm you know <laughs> I'm a breadwinner um, and uh, and the fact that you know when I first had my first child it was completely normal to get back in the saddle again after five months um, things have changed and in a way I wonder if they've gone backwards for a lot of women I don't know, when I had mine, which was a long time ago, we got 13 weeks and we thought this was amazing. <laughs> I remember exactly. my, fir my first boss saying to me, you're not taking your full maternity leave, are you? And I went, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, things have changed. But they also at the time would have asked you, had you a boyfriend and were you going to get married? But they're not allowed to do that anymore. No. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so it's all good. Yeah. And as you say, there are as many dads as there are moms at, at school games, yeah. reflection time now, which is all good. Um, but tell me, so what are your, your top tips for leadership, your pearls of wisdom? Okay, so, um, so starting at the beginning of the pipeline um, and the hiring stage, I think yeah, we alluded to this earlier, you know, don't compromise. 
Um, and my rule of thumb is if I don't think someone's better than me, I shouldn't hire them. <laughs> oh. um, so, you know, we, we kind of have that sort of, we have a bit of a shorthand in the office now and we interview somebody, which is if we come out and somebody goes, hmm, then that we shouldn't be hiring that person because we know that the ones who come into the room and blow us away and we come out feeling slightly intimidated are the ones who, when they join, are going to look normal amongst the rest of the team. So we just have to set those standards really high. And even when we feel like we're really shorthanded and we've got so much on, you know, never to make that mistake of thinking, oh, you'll do. Yeah. Um, and yeah, um, so yeah, always hiring people who are better than you. Okay. <laughs> Everyone's better than, better than you at something. Yeah, like, yeah. no, you'll do, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, next exactly. one. Um, I think the next one probably does go back to um, my early start in the retail industry, which is, you know, you've got to really understand your customer and understand them on a kind of intimate level. You know, really have that sort of image in your head of who they are and what they like and get under the skin of that. Because if you don't, you're going to get, you're just going to take wrong turns. So, um, you know, putting the customer at the heart of everything, you know, we have, we have lots of customer profiles that we've built up over time at Luminance where we've got to really understand, you know, the different people, like specific individuals in the legal profession, um, who, um, who are a type, um, who represent you know, particular roles across lots of different law firms and lots of different in-house legal teams so that we really understand their perspectives and when we're writing something for them or building something for them that we've really looked, looked at that and understood who they are. We actually have photographs of people on them you know, with wow. their names and quotes from them. Um, and coming back to that all the time, you know, who are you doing this for? Do you understand who they are? Um, it's a big so, part of that listening and make sure you, you're tuned in like you yeah. did earlier on, you know, learning that you had customers who were Norwegian or, you know, mm. French, Dutch, you know, that it didn't really matter, but you learned that from your customer. Is it really important to listen to your customer? Yeah. And I think really, you know, day to day, um, you know, listening is 80% of the job for me. Um, you know, 40% of the job is listening to the customer. 40% of the job is listening to, um, to the team. Um, and the other 20% is doing stuff. Um, but really, you know, understanding you know, what's going on and having a really good radar um, for all of those things is, um, is absolutely vital. And sometimes that can be always a bit frustrating because you feel as if you're not really doing anything. Um, but there's no point in just, you know, kind of crashing about doing stuff if you haven't really listened and really understood. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, getting, in, getting into that sort of listening mode, I mean, it's exhausting as well. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> spending yeah. you know, really having to kind of listen very closely to everything um but i think it's you know, it's a huge part of the job for me okay next leadership tip if any more um we touched on this earlier as well when we were talking about diversity of thought but i think disagreement is really important um and no one should feel too intimidated to disagree and we have had problems like that in the past you know where we've hired people when they're very young i mean some of our best people come straight out of university sometimes they're best because they've come straight out of university and they haven't picked up bad habits from <laughs> from from some other job but what that does mean is that it's easy to forget that I'm sitting there with my sort of 25 years experience and they might feel like they're not allowed to disagree with me. And we had a really good PR call earlier with a brand new member of the marketing team who said, maybe it's not my place to say this, but our competitors are doing a really good thing here. And it's exactly your place to say this. That is exactly what I want you to say. This is, again, why I hired you. You know, don't be, <laughs> you're not being boring or stupid when you say that. You know, that is exactly what we want to hear. I don't want you to tell me that our marketing is better than everybody else's. If you can see someone's doing something better, let's understand that. Um, so, yeah, I think making sure that 
they all understand that I want them to disagree. I want them to say, and the last thing I want to hear is, oh, I didn't want to say because I thought it might be, it might be annoyed. Um, so making sure that there's space for that disagreement so you can really stress test all of your, um, yeah, all, all of your theories um, you know, and make sure that you're right more than 50% of the time. Pretty good going. And so that's your list. Is that, is that your full list? Uh, the last one, I suppose, is data. Um, and I think this, again, goes back to having your roots in retail. You know, when you're a retailer, you get into work at six o'clock on a Monday morning and stare at the figures to figure out what you're going to do for the rest of the week. So having really good data in the early days um, will help you scale up. And, you know, it's not about volume of data. It's about understanding what the right things are, what the right things are to be looking at. Um, and, you know, for us in the early days, that wasn't sales. Um, it was customer activity. You know, it doesn't matter how much we're selling if people aren't using the product and they aren't actually spending any time with the product or getting any value out of it then that's not this situation is not going to last so focusing on customer activity and make, you know, making sure that that's forefront of the mind has always been very important is it important to innovate all the time and just be coming up with new ways of doing things um new products you mean well no, do you want I, to yeah you need to develop new products like innovate or die isn't that what they say I think it's a danger in trying to do too many things because um, the danger is that you'll move on to something else before you've, before you've got something else, got the first thing right, especially when you're a small team. Um, and I think a lot, of our, a lot of our strength in the early days particularly came from our ability to say no. Um, so to begin with, we were focused on M&A lawyers in law firms doing due diligence. And we were forever getting people coming to us and saying, hey, I'm an insurance company, can you do something for me? And when we had no customers or two or three customers, the temptation to say, sure, we can, because we knew we could, was overwhelming, but we didn't. Um, and I'm very glad we didn't, because if we had, we would have spread ourselves too thinly. We would have ended up with you know, five customers, five products, instead of, as we've now got, getting off 250 customers on you know, three products. Um, so yeah, when we made the decision to, to um, launch new versions of Luminance, we did that very, very carefully. Um, we didn't want to, um, yeah, we wanted to make sure that we stayed as focused as possible. That was my next question. Relentless focus. I think somebody else said to yeah. me before. It's really, but really then innovation. It is really important, but then innovation isn't necessarily about new products, is it? I think a lot of the time where we're innovating is maybe in our support process, you know, maybe in our data, maybe in you know, what we're measuring, um, maybe in things like, yeah, we launched, you know, really boring seeming things have made a huge difference. Like we launched a user portal last year. So within the product, you could go in and find copies of all of the, you know, all, you know, all of the kind of little user guide videos and things and somewhere where you can lodge your, your question. Um, you know, things like that have really helped with customer stickiness and to keep our customers really engaged and um, make sure that they're happy with the product. And that's all innovation too. What is your secret of success? I mean, you were named Woman of the Year at the Women in IT Excellence Awards in 2018. How did you do that? <laughs> that always that always makes me laugh. That makes me laugh because my children think that's really, really brilliant because they get as far as Woman of the Year and then they ignore the Women in IT Excellence Awards bit of it. Like, you know, saying, yeah, guess, guess what? Um, I 
think, well, to be, uh, to be fair, there's probably an extent to which you know, there aren't that many women in leadership roles in technical technology companies, as you say. Um, but also, I think it's just about making a lot of noise. I think one of the things that you have to do is you know, make sure that you're out there and talking and engaging um, with, um, with the press and with your customers and you know, with everybody you possibly can. And you know, it, those awards very often go to people who people know about rather than people they don't know about. <laughs> so I'm sure think- there are a lot of people who are a lot better than me. Yeah. Do you think a lot of women are reluctant to do that part of it, the whole pitching and getting out there? It's a funny thing, actually. So years ago, when I was working um, in my M&A integration role, um, I was doing some research into um, people in financial services who were customers of my client. And I, I was talking earlier about, you know, the need to really understand the customers. And I found I could always find photographs of these people if they were men because they'd been on golf tournaments and there'd be a photograph of them at the golf tournament. When I went to the LinkedIn profile of the women, there would always be the little grey outline headshot thing. I could never get a photograph of a woman. I think that might have changed, though. Yeah. That was probably 10 years ago. And I think that has changed in the meantime. Um, and I think uh, there's a lot less reticence now to put your photograph on the internet. I think you know, that was something that people were really worried about, mm. having people look at you. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's so much of an issue now. I don't know whether, whether you see that. I think getting them to talk and to express their own opinions can be difficult as well, just the voice, because women get teased and slagged for being shrill, too noisy, too mm-hmm. quiet, you know, so the voice is always something that people are critical of as well. So it's a hard one. Uh, yeah, I've only ever had that happen to me once, actually. Um, and it's quite interesting because you sort of hear about it in the abstract and when it happens in real life, you, yeah, you kind of don't really... I came. I, I was on stage at the conference, and there was a panel discussion. Um, and um, one of the people on the panel um, talked over me and said, "You know, said, oh, you know, I think she's talked enough now, don't you? Someone get, someone bring her a Gatorade." <laughs> this is in America, um, and I didn't really realise it had happened until afterwards. And I got off the stage, and, and actually, one of the guys on my team went, "I can't believe he just did that to you. That's outrageous." Because it was so unexpected, I just thought I'd misheard. Um, but yes, I think there is definitely an element of that. Yeah, I think this is, is an element of Australia time, as a course. You know, when you're on a long distance call and there's that time delay thing and you hear it and you go like, did I really hear that? You know, so, and I've seen it happen yeah. so often, you know, but um, how do you cope yeah. with that when you're, you're, you're not expecting it? You know, you see it happening in the media all the time. It, it's a tough one. Anyway, I'm going to let you go shortly, but tell me, what's your go-to song? What do you put on in your iPod or if you're going out for a walk? You know, what's your go-to song to get yourself motivated in the morning? The funny thing is, I, genuinely, I'm, not, I'm so not a creature of habit that I don't have one. It changes all the time. So it'll be, you know, probably whatever the kids are into at the moment, which would mostly right now be Lizzo. Um, but it would change all the time. You know, it could be that or it could be Vivaldi. And, you know, it really would just, you know, there's no pattern, unfortunately. <laughs> That's OK. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a great believer in diversity of musical thought as well. It's <laughs> very good. And, you know, during times like this and lockdowns, you, you kind of get to experiment. You've got more time to do reading and listening to music and you can expand your, your, your thoughts and your choices of music. Are, do you read? Are you a big reader? Do you get time to read? I actually, yeah, I actually read quite a lot. Um, so uh, I'm a, I have a, I'm a member of a book group, which um, my children call the book group because we don't ever actually talk about any books. Um, <laughs> the last time we had the meeting here, my youngest daughter came downstairs and said, mommy, this is not a book group. This is women and wine. 
um, but we do t we do seem to crack through quite a few books. But I think I'm a slight insomniac, so I have a Kindle Paperwhite. So when I'm going to sleep, I read in the dark so that I can just. So I think I get through quite a bit that way. Um, but it's amazing that it's that it manages to fit in around everything else. Isn't it? What's the best book you've read lately? Uh, well, I'm obviously reading um, Hilary Mantel. Um, the Mirror and the Light, the new one, obviously, because I'm a massive fan. Um, yeah. I read Motherwell a few weeks ago by Deborah Orr, um, which is which was really great. Um, what else? Yeah, that yeah, those are probably the, the best two for the last few weeks, I'd say. Really good. Yeah, I just bought the Hilary Mantel book myself because I don't normally read big books, but I read Wolf Hall and Bringing Up the Bodies, and I could not put them down. They're great books, fantastic. Really books. great. But yeah. you know what the um uh does she she wrote did, did you read a place of greater safety which is about the French oh. Revolution? I've got to pick so that one. So it's really great. But I read it on my Kindle. I think it was one of the earlier ones that I read, and um I was reading it and thinking, no, this is really really great, and I'm really really enjoying it. But it's taking me ages. And then I saw it on a bookshelf in a bookshop, and it's like this. And you don't realize when you're reading it on a Kindle. But yeah, it's really good. <laughs> anyway, I've just got the time up from Zoom. This yeah, is the too. first call that I've, I've used on Zoom. So it's worked out pretty good. I, I'll know about the, the, the sound quality later. But I just want to thank you very much, Emily, uh, for forcing me to use Zoom in the first place and really enjoyed <laughs> our conversation. No, no, it's really good. Um, but uh, it's been a pleasure meeting you and uh, the best of luck with Luminance and your career. Likewise. Thank you very much, Angie. My thanks to this week's guest, Emily Foges, CEO of Luminance. My take homes from Emily is the importance of listening, focusing on your core business, keeping customers happy and sticky through innovation within that. Thanks for joining us and do subscribe to the Women in Leadership podcast and please tell your friends to join in too. The newsletter will be coming out later this month, so if you'd like to be on our mailing list, do go to the website and sign up for lots of additional content about the Women in Leadership podcast and about our featured guests. If you'd like to suggest a guest or to become a sponsor, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on info at womeninleadership.ie or write to us using the contact box on the website womeninleadership.ie. Until the next podcast, from me, Angie Mazzetti, and all on the Women in Leadership podcast team, goodbye and take care. <laughs> <laughs>